I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Holy shit. Did you read Anne Kingston's article in McLean's? It's called Vanishing Canada. This is not a story about a scientist who can't talk to the press. This is not about a civil servant who got suspended for criticizing Harper in a funny song. This is an article about the widespread destruction of public information, of decades and decades of public information, records deleted, burned, tossed in dumpsters. This investigation of Ann Kingston's has gone viral. I am told that it is the most shared article from McLean's website ever. The issues that it raises should be election issues. Somehow they are not. And Ann Kingston will be with me in a moment to discuss it. Wait for it. Okay, quick note before we get to the show today. Laura Robinson has lost her libel case against John Furlong. If you heard our coverage or if you're aware of the story, you'll know that Laura Robinson is the independent investigative reporter who wrote an expose of John Furlong in the Georgia Strait newspaper in Vancouver. What her investigation revealed is that 45 First Nation Canadians say that they witnessed John Furlong abusing children themselves or others when he was a phys ed instructor at a missionary school in rural British Columbia years and years ago. 
Furlong launched a libel case against Laura Robinson. He dropped it. In defending himself against Robinson, he said things that led to a countersuit of libel from Robinson against Furlong. Robinson has lost in a scathing, lengthy ruling. Some of you have been asking me what I make of that ruling. Will I be covering that ruling? What we have to say about it? What I want to tell you is that, yes, we will be covering it extensively. We will be covering the impact on the alleged victims, and we will be covering the impact on journalism. And it's just taking a little bit of time as the legal experts that we have been talking to parse the ruling and try to figure out where it fits into Canadian case law. I have strong feelings about this case. It's important to get the context of a legal opinion in our coverage, and that is forthcoming in the days and maybe even a week or two ahead. Please wait for that as well. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Daniel Robinson, Vladislav Tumir, Jason Nazimek, Alim Jiwa, Brent Rainey, Alex T, Nick Jordan, Graham, Janet Whiten, and Gordon McDowell. Gordon, why did you decide to be awesome? Because I'm following Canadian news again. It's some of the best money I've ever spent. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is also brought to you by FreshBooks, a company that I am very fond of because it makes small entrepreneurs, independent freelancers, little guys, look like big guys, look slick, get paid quicker, save time. It's a useful tool. It's a Canadian-made tool. Cloud accounting, painless billing, great mobile app, freshbooks.com. Go to FreshBooks and try out this wonderful tool for free if you have a small business, if you are self-employed. Why haven't you done this yet? Go to freshbooks.com. Give it a whirl. It's actually kind of fun to use. And after 30 days, you will probably end up 
deciding to pay for this thing. When you do, tell them who sent you. You will be doing this show a favor. Thank you, FreshBooks. I think it's difficult to to write a story about archiving and data collection that makes people want to weep uncontrollably. <laughs> You've accomplished that. So, I, well, thank you. I congratulations. Think. Uh, well, I don't know if that's a good thing or or not. I mean, certainly, I think one of the things I was trying to do with the piece was to humanize it. And in fact, Miles Cork, who's an economist, he's at the University of Ottawa, put it quite poetically when he was talking about statistics. We tend to think of them as these lifeless, bloodless things, but in fact, they're human lives in bits and bytes. And in a way, if you start seeing them that way, the resonance of this vanishing country in terms of our understanding data but ourselves takes on a sense of urgency and also it makes it relevant to the way people live. So I tried to include as many personal anecdotal stories as I could. You start off with this tale of this town, Melville, Saskatchewan, that really illustrates the problem of what happens when you stop counting. Yes. Now, okay, Melville, Saskatchewan is a town of around 5,000 people, and it is what's now known as a statistical ghost town. The reason for that is after the mandatory long-form census was axed in 2011, replaced with a voluntary household survey, the people of Melville, like many other kind of designated census areas, less than 50% filled out the form, which rendered this town a statistical ghost town. We know how many people live in Melville. We know how many households there are, but we don't know who the people are. We don't know what they earn. We don't know education. We don't know their marital status. We don't know their poverty level. And these are all important things for Melville and also you know, to plan its own future as well as the country to kind of understand. It's almost like in a category above important. It's like they don't exist. From a policy standpoint, the government doesn't see us as individuals. They see us as is a collection of statistics of how much money we're making and what we need and, and what our jobs are and where we're moving. And if you make a, the census a fraction of the information and then you make it voluntary – and then you get into a situation where a complete town essentially just vanishes. Well, that's right. And the thing about a voluntary, you talk to any statistician and they will say the reason voluntary surveys don't work is because they're very – the people who respond to them aren't necessarily the ones you make social policy for. In other words, you don't hear from the very poor, the very rich. You don't necessarily hear from immigrant populations. It's a way, in fact, if you don't want to hear these voices, if you want to pretend they don't exist, this is a way you do it. Yeah, and I hope it's not confirmation bias if I think that if there was intentionality, it was the immigrant voices and the low-income voices that were intentional. You know, like, we, we, we can do without those when we're making policy. I have a feeling that the high-income people who choose not to fill out the census have other ways of making themselves known to government. I, I would agree with you there. <laughs> yeah. But let's, um, let's describe the problem. I mean, the long-form census— But wait, just to go back to that point. Sure. By not having the 1% or the very rich— counted. We also don't know about income inequity. Yeah. So that's that's part of, you know, that's an interesting factor that we don't really think about. But if we don't have that information, it really counts too. Then the spectrum is skewed. You don't Precisely. know how yeah. far up it goes. And then you're not seeing the huge long tail of all the people at the bottom. But the long form census is the most talked about form of data vanishing over the past 10 years. But you document that this is something that is happening en masse. I mean, like, can you give us a sense of the scope of the problem? That's what really came across in reading this piece. Well, yeah, the piece, um, the long form census is a big deal. Internationally, people have talked about it. But what my piece was, was basically a lot of the stuff that I was talking about. Some of it has been reported already. The statistical ghost towns have the you know loss of scientific libraries or 
government libraries, access to information issues, all of these things. And what I tried to do in the piece is connect the dots. So in terms of the scope, I'll give you an example. When the government consolidated all of its websites in 2014, 60% of data was basically lost. And that you know, it's mind-boggling, and there's no way of tracing how data is being collected, or what's being shed, or what's being focused on, because basically bureaucrats are making this decision now, and we have no printed records uh, going 60% forward. Sixty percent of the data we've had forever, right? That we've collected thus far. This is what um, librarians at University of Toronto have, who have beyond there, they've created this almost cottage industry in capturing this information, trying to archive it, so they can track any changes yeah. in the government information going forward. That right. Resonated with me. I, I spent a number of years as a, as a tech journalist, and I would write about things like open data and archiving, and you know, never succeeded as you did in making this not a techies issue, but something that everybody needs to care about. But one thing that I noticed again and again is how the language of progressive future thinking, digital—I called it like instead of whitewashing, bitewashing—that <laughs> right. when you want to destroy or cut, I mean, we're seeing it right now, like La Presse, which is the big. The big success right. story in our field in journalism, oh, they're having a wonderful success with their tablet. They just killed 158 jobs. Right. When the CBC had their uh, cutbacks, they had this wonderful new digital strategy. So you mask something that you're destroying by acting like you're progressive and you're creating and you're modernizing and then you're finding efficiencies, digitization. But if digitization means – digitization could be, should be great if you're going to digitize all of your records and make them more available in an open, machine-readable format. But if in the process 60 percent of your data is lost – that's not digitization. That's just data destruction. Or in a sense, you know, it's both. And the th- two things become conflated. And yeah. we don't see its information imploding on itself in a sense. So, yeah, it's um, the digitization came up again and again, uh, certainly at the Ar- Library Archives Canada. One thing that I didn't get into is how industry is now partnering, say, with Libraries Archives Canada. Ancestry.ca is in there helping them collect, and they're going to be using some of this information as well. That's a story onto itself because these partnerships also skew how and what is kept. And the difference between the public domain and... And And the commercial one. Right. When information, big data, databases, and, you know, information being used for purposes that are not necessarily a benefit to the public, that is now a growing industry, a major industry. Exactly. And so you have this information that's technically paid for by taxpayers. And how is it being used? We're just starting. I mean, this is something I want to look into in more detail. There are so many examples in your story. We, We hear about the muzzling of scientists. And there's, I guess, a fair debate about people saying, well, these, these scientists are being paid to do science, not being paid to, you know, issue press releases. Uh, that's the argument you hear. You have these examples of, well, hold on a second. The unit, the lab, the one that Silent Spring was based on, the lab that the hole in the ozone layer was found from, those are closed. So it's not about scientists not being able to speak. It's about shuttering of, you know, you quote a scientist who says, well, if I couldn't do this research that I had done, because what I was basing it on is no longer available. Like- That's right. It's Jeff Hutchins out at Dalhousie who had done you know, landmark work in cod fisheries, really important science. He could not do now because the information is no longer there. The library that he worked in, this beautiful library, has been closed down. So it isn't simply, you know, scientists being silenced in terms of talking about their research. That's part of it. But the ability to even access old studies is not there anymore. The stuff that you need to build future research on is not there. It Compare and contrast. Statistics Canada, for instance, there are, like, it's two lost decades. I was talking to one economist who's trying to do work in oil pricing. 
he can't do it yeah. because he can't see back to the 70s and sort of try to predict where future patterns are going to come from based on past experience. Those, that data does not exist anymore. I mean, it's out there somewhere, but he, can't, he doesn't have access to it. What is that quote, never attribute to malice what could be better explained by indifference? Is this intentional? Is it political? Or is this just, hey, this is a government that's trying to cut costs and – yeah, there's going to be a loss if you're going to scale back. Well, I think you can look at it. It's That's a good question. I, In terms of themes running through my piece, certainly there seems to be consistency about limiting and directing the, a narrative in a particular way in which access to information is not a government priority. I think we can pretty much say that safely without it sounding partisan or nonpartisan. But I've had response from scientists and you know people who are in the field and care deeply, but they see it as a function more of the systems that have been imposed rather than any nefarious kind of plotting at the top. But when you look at patterns and and the evidence itself, it seems pretty indisputable that this government does not want to share a lot of information with the people it governs. It feels willful when you're like shutting down the lab that discovered the hole in the ozone layer, but you launch a new initiative that's counting how many Canadians have bird feeders and you and you call it an environmental study. Yeah, and it seems it shows and well that that study was really interesting because that was in 2013. They they're sort of trying to track Canadians' interest in the in, environment and their participation in sort of environmental things. And I'm thinking it's almost as if it's become up to the citizens to solve this problem. Meanwhile. The government is shuttering all this stuff down. But there's also another way of looking at it. We're losing a lot of information, but it's not – it's being replaced with other things. We're seeing, you know, new industry initiatives. We're seeing the source of information that government receives is less and less the people and more and more industry. And I think that it's not as if – the title of the piece is Vanishing Canada, but it's being replaced with new narratives and a new Mm -hmm. understanding of who we are. We'll return to that, but I I just, like, want to clarify – in terms of how willful it is. And the part where my reaction to your piece went from crying to, you know, rage was where you write about, there's a suggestion of intentionality when you remove the baseline of where we were environmentally or what a pollution level was, then we can't tell how good or bad we are in relation to that. And that feels like, oh my God, you're destroying civilization. No no future government's going to be able to repair that if that information's gone. No. Can we lay that at this government's feet? Is that happening? And, and you know, what room do they have to deny culpability in that? Well, I would like to hear the, them deny or speak to this issue. I haven't heard any response yet. I think that in terms of, you know, your point about we cannot measure anything, that's where it becomes, you have the sense of just, there's no balance here. We cannot, there's no, as you say, baseline in, and it's a particularly sort of concerning one in the middle of a federal election when you've got a government that is very strongly um, running on its economic record. Yeah. We don't have data on poverty levels since 2011. We cannot, there's lots of things that we cannot see economically. We can't say you're doing a bad job, you're doing a good job. We do know that they're turning to Kadiji for labor numbers in yeah. order to support an argument. We don't, this is problematic because there, we can't, it can't feels, see. It feels like there's laser focus to it. I mean, there's, there's, uh, you talk about these longitudinal studies where they actually follow a generation of young people as they move through their careers, uh, as they progress economically, and then they just stop following them. And so 
I feel on the hook there. I'm like, well, I've never felt represented as, I mean, I'm losing any claim on being a young person, but you know, you make practical what has always been a sense that nobody even cares enough to look or pay attention to whether people my age and younger can hope to make as much or more than their parents, or if it's going to be a downward slope. And it feels like, it was like well, if it is a downward slope, we don't want to know. Well, exactly. Well, I think longitudinal, the cutting of several, there were four major, major longitudinal studies that were slashed in 2012. And, you know, for purposes of economy. However, any economist will tell you it's terribly expensive to run those studies because they can go on for decades. But the rewards are hugely, are considerable. And cutting them the way they did is money down the drain. And I think this is one of the points I, I... wanted to make in the piece is that we see data erasure as being an issue of democracy, which of course it is. But I think that people have to understand that this, if you want to be baseline selfish and greedy about it, this will affect your quality of life. This will affect your earnings potential, your industry, all sorts of indicators that people, if you want to be really, really selfish. This is an issue that you should really care about. I feel like, like Charlton Hester, the end of Planet of the Apes, you fools. What are you, like, you talk about like throwing data in the dumpster. I thought that was a metaphor, but like they're literally, it's a dumpster. Well, I, I, dumpster is, I I learned it was a proper noun in the writing of this um, piece. No, I, there in Winnipeg, there was an example of a shutdown of a library where consultants and scientists were basically just, you know, the stuff was being thrown out and people were combing through it. Uh And and this is tax, you know, material paid with tax dollars. Okay. You're being a very diligent journalist here. The distinction is between a trash can and an official like uh, dumpster, Uh, as in like capital K Kleenex Jeep dumpster. I don't know what this big bin looked like, whether it was officially a a place where you put trash. Yes, exactly. Wow. You alluded earlier to, you know, some of the measures that are being taken I mean, I can just imagine being a researcher, a scientist being asked to do this or being asked to stand idly by while the work of your peers, the work that your future research might be based on your own work is being destroyed. And you write about almost these rogue archivists who are just taking it upon themselves to like, I don't know what, send it to their Gmail accounts? Well, they're creating systems, as I kind of mentioned, alluded to it a bit earlier. Yeah, we have a complete cottage industry that is being created in this country trying to quantify what's being lost. And I compared it in the piece to sort of capturing fireflies before they're extinguished. And and also, you know, we see it, Canadian journalists for freedom of expression are now, you know, instead of writing about totalitarian regimes offshore, they're turning their attention to data in Canada. Well, it's an international problem. As, as you as you describe, it's actually like earned us international condemnation from... We've become literally a cautionary tale, according to one U.S. statistician who was trying to... He's part of a, a movement that is trying to prevent the elimination of... The Republicans are calling for elimination of the, their equivalent of the long-form census mandatory. Yeah. And people are saying, wait a second, look north, look what's happened there as an example. And, you know, I spoke with somebody in in uh, England who she was just appalled that an eminent um, statistician, that government was intervening. The politics were affecting statistical gathering seen in the, the the loss of the long-form census against the wishes of many statisticians within StatsCan. I mean, I covered this tragic story 
of this kid, Aaron Swartz, you, you may know about him. What he was trying to speak to was less egregious than this and what ultimately I think cost him his life. And to people who don't know about Aaron Swartz, he was a brilliant young guy, one of the founders of Reddit and developed RSS with other people. And he got, ran into trouble with the law when he was going into private databases, government databases in some cases, and just trying to liberate the data and upload it to the internet and make it so that everybody could have access to it. And that speaks to what you were you know, bringing up earlier, which is that so much database is you know, going into the hands – even stuff that's designated for the public is going into the hands of private corporations. He thought that that was improper and he made it his business uh, to free that stuff. And he would write little – he was you know, a hacker of sorts who, who would get this stuff onto the open internet. And he got caught at MIT trying to get academic papers. I mean this is what he was – this was his crime. He was trying to get academic papers on the open internet and the, the government came at him with all of their force and ultimately he took his own life. It's a terrible story. But the impetus, his desire to get information free, there was still information that existed. He was just trying to get it more free. This is worse than that. To destroy information is it's just an affront to – knowledge to science, to the, to the whole like basic foundation of what we're trying to do here. And it's also taking place at a time then that everyone is championing big data and open platform. That's the strangest thing. Like it, it's never been cheaper. Why, there's no reason to throw away data. It's never been cheaper to store data. It's never been cheaper to send it around or easier to send it around. There's just no reason. It's just senseless. Well, then you have to figure out what the reason is. What can we do about this? Because it's, it's – okay – it has become an election issue to the extent that the other parties are saying we'll bring back the long-form census. But that doesn't even begin to scratch what you're describing here. Well, it has to do with scientific – there have been – in fact, we just did – McLean's, it's on the website, did a kind of a primer on where the parties stand on – related issues in yeah. terms of scientific gathering, um, in terms of the census. But it's – no, I mean – Every other party except the conservatives are for the reinstatement of the long-form census. But it has to do with transparency of government. There are lots of factors that are part of this equation. It's not simply – and also how are we going to figure out what we're going to do about this lost – sort of this gap in yeah. time. I mean the transparency in government thing I feel is almost a lost cause because a lot of that started at least in an American context under Bush – and then Obama came in and was the worst. Yes, absolutely. He was the worst because governments no, – no authority wants to be more accountable. There's so much lip service to transparency. But nobody says, I would like more chances to be caught doing my job poorly. I would like more opportunities to humiliate myself. No one is going to come in to office in Canada and say, let's make ourselves more available to the press. I can't see that. You know, there's so many reasons why the parties are struggling to find new programs and fund their new programs or balance budgets or make new deficits out of their new programs. Is there any, any promise out there in the platforms to reinstate some of the uh, scientific analysis? Yes. Oh, they're actually, I mean, the Green, the green Party, the green party. <laughs> um, as, as, it, as part of their platform. But I think that there should be pressure. I mean, just because it seems impossible is not reason to to make it an issue. I, I haven't. I am flummoxed that this is not this is this is primary yeah. as far as I'm concerned. But it's a tough one, as you said at the outset. It's statistics. It's difficult. It's kind of boring. And what does it really mean to me? I mean, I've gotten letters from people saying, you know, I'm really happy that we don't have the long form census because it means the government isn't intruding into my you know privacy and it saves half an hour, I guess, every 
five years or whatever, which is show, so blinkered. It's so short term. Does that speak to like there is this concept of a kind of like libertarian, you know, don't like hands off my information government. But then you actually th- talk about like the citizens of Melville. I like to think and, and, and I believe that people are not stupid. There are stupid people, but people are not stupid en masse. And when you vote for a party or how can you vote for a party who has made you statistically non-existent and then by definition, no policy will be written that regards you and your interests as a thing, as a factor. I mean, when you tell people, I mean, I know you're not out stumping, but when people know, oh, this town doesn't exist anymore to the federal government, we're a statistical ghost town, what is the support for that government like in that community? This is an interesting question because the mayor of Melville, uh, Walter Strelaski, who I called up and said, do you know that you're a statistical ghost town? And he didn't. He didn't understand that he didn't even know that this was happening to his town. And he said, I'm going to talk to my MP about it. Uh-huh. So I went to look to see who his MP was, and his MP is a conservative. So it's unlikely he's going to get much satisfaction from that conversation. So it is a conservative town. So we'll see what happens if it, there's any change in the wind in Melville. It's ironic. I was when I was talking to him. I was he was talking about smelling the wildfires burning in the distance, and it just all kind of came together in this kind of. As going back to the kind of the apocalyptic picture, you've got this country burning for reasons related that have been linked to climate change, yet we're not gathering this information. And I'm talking to somebody who's in a ghost town. It was all slightly surreal. I think that that's how your piece hit. And your piece has become, I mean, it's been a, a viral hit as far as a piece of long-form journalism, uh, an investigative piece. For, for it's, been, it's been really widely shared. There's a question there as to what that means. What is our power to put these issues on the map? I mean, after reading your piece and then, and then listening to the debate, you get like, why, why is anyone talking about anything but this. You know, a lot of the things that journalists can get upset about access to information requests not getting fulfilled. And that might not resonate with... Actually, sorry to interrupt, but what I learned doing this piece is that the number one constituency now asking for access to information are private citizens, not journalists. Really? Which is pretty interesting. I don't know exactly. I didn't drill down into that. But that fact in itself, now, whether it's because people are hearing about access to information and understanding sort of that it's very interesting you can find this information, that it's available. We've heard about some high-profile cases. But that's, that's pretty fascinating. It is. I wonder if it has to do with people's apps if people are trying to develop because there's so much that people can do yeah, if they have information. Absolutely. I wonder, I wonder people are, Yeah, there's a paradox. People are understanding the value of this information at the very time it's less and less available. Huh. That's a good aside. We should try to figure that out. What it felt like to me is that you sort of strung together a lot of things that I think had previously been dismissed as little pet issues of like maybe even media party lefty journalists and, you know, those who care about civil servants not being able to write satirical songs or, you know, the threat of library closures. It's like, no, 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 no. This is everything all together and it speaks to every part of policy because it it touches environmental policy. It touches science. It touches – it touches issues like why is, has Canada become such a fossil fuel dependent economy and and not an information-based economy? And if you don't have information, Mm -hmm. so much of what's being done that's so incredible 
in Silicon Valley has to do with access to huge databases. And who has it, yeah. right? The information is that's that directs the conversation, the narrative, everything, the power base. Um, one of the things that struck me doing the piece was, and more and more, it was just how normalized it has become in Canada. We talk about the libraries closing. We talk about, you know, this, the census and we talk about all these things and we sort of think it's become a norm. And it's almost as if we're inured to the consequences of it. It's a frog in, you know, slowly warming water. We don't even think about it. And that's, as I was writing this, it struck me that we're all kind of bovine on this issue or we should be absolutely inflamed. But in order to do that, we have to get the facts. And it's very hard to yeah. get that information to begin with. And because there's such a collection of disparate issues that you've, you've kind of brought them all together, no one's put a name to it. Like, what is this problem? Yeah. And that was the purpose of the piece was to, to say, look— this country is vanishing before our eyes. That's your Canada Land Show. I hope you liked it. You can email me always at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read them all and I respond when I can. The website is at canadalandshow.com and our crowdfunding site is at patreon.com slash canadaland. I make this show with Katie Jensen. The next episode of Canada Land Commons will be up on Tuesday, and the next episode of Canada Land Shortcuts will be up on Thursday. If you like this show, please support it. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you.